teacher, my crayon broke. Can I paint at the easel? She won't let me have a turn with the pointer. Are you tired of all the interruptions during your small group time? If small groups seem impossible in your pre-K classroom, then stick around because in today's episode of Elevating Early Childhood, we will be joined by none other than the Dan St. Romain. In this Behavior Bites episode, Dan is going to help us troubleshoot small group interruptions, so be sure to stick around until the very end so you can start working smarter, not harder, when it comes to small groups. You're listening to Elevating Early Childhood, where we believe in leveling the playing field and bridging the gap between the world of preschool, pre-K, and K-12 education. I'm your host, Vanessa Levin, and I went from a pre-K teacher of 20 years to a passionate advocate for high-quality early childhood education. I truly believe that the work you do, yes, you as an early childhood professional, is absolutely crucial, not just for your students, but society as a whole. I believe that you deserve to have the tools and training that you need to do your job well, so you can really embody your role as a professional educator and your students can achieve their true potential. Listen in each week as I bring you real conversations with me and other early childhood teachers and experts where our mission is to guide you on your journey to becoming the most well-equipped and highly trained professional educator you can possibly be. All while helping you teach smarter, not harder, so you can live more. And there might even be a little humor thrown in here and there just to keep things light and fun. If you'd like to get started upping your early literacy game today, check out my book, Teach Smarter, Literacy Strategies for Early Childhood Teachers on Amazon. Well, Dan, thanks again for um, coming on the show. I love, you know, I love talking with you. I enjoy it as well. And today I thought we would talk about, this was a question that actually came up this past weekend, no joke. Somebody asked me this question and it's about how can you like do small groups or any type of one-on-one teaching or whatever when all the kids just constantly interrupt you. And the struggle is real. I get it. But I'm wondering if you could um, just chat with us about why you think that is and what we can do maybe. What do you think? Absolutely. You know, Vanessa, that's always been an issue. Like teachers of early childhood have always complained, the kids come to me, the kids come to me, the kids come to me. And one of the things that I talk about is, you know, especially during COVID and since the pandemic, Adults have always been around, like just because of the pandemic. And when adults are always around, that makes it easier for adults to intervene and solve problems for our kids. True. So, you know, when we look at why it's understandable, plus young children, as part of their development, they go from dependence to independence. Well, when they're with us, they're still in that toggling back and forth, but they really do lean towards that dependent, dependent, dependent. Like that is a normal stage of development. Now, obviously when they get older, we want them to be more independent. But the problem is sometimes we assume they are more independent than they really are. 
Right. Actually, <laughs> I don't know, Vanessa, if y'all have talked about this, but I talk about COVID regression, how even though you say that child is four years old and they should be able to do things right. on their own, they were four years old, maybe, you know, in a different generation. But right now with the COVID issue, you're dealing with four-year-old ch children physically, but in terms of their ability to be independent, they're probably still like a two-year-old which naturally those kids are going to be more dependent. It is probably normal, even though frustrating, that kids are being more dependent these days. Right, it's kind of like, and this is just my own analogy, it's kind of like when a baby learns to walk, right? We don't just say walk, baby, walk. There's a process they go through and we can't just say the same goes for independence. We can't just say, be independent, child, be independent. They don't know what that means. They don't, there, there's, a, there's a process they have to go through in order to be ready to do that. And I think that we as teachers can do things, that these things that are in our power to help them develop independence, but they're not gonna magically have this ability without some scaffolding and support from us. Do you agree? Absolutely. And, you know, Vanessa, I'm gonna bring us back to something. Whenever I say this phrase, people always laugh because they immediately are brought back to their, you know, college classes, but it's called the zone of proximal development. Yes. And I ask groups, I'll say zone of proximal development, they're like, that's Vygotsky. And then they yeah. look around going, how did I know that? How did I know that? Right. And that was because it was drilled in your brain. And of course, the zone of proximal development is that idea of when we're working with anyone, when we're instructing, we present material and present challenges that are just outside their comfort zone. Like we don't want to present them with tasks they can already like totally do that isn't a little challenging. We want to give them a little challenge, but here's the problem. If we move too far outside the comfort zone and we ask them to do things that are really beyond where they're ready, what happens is they shut down. So the first thing I'm going to tell you in terms of strategies, Vanessa, you know, once we understand that it's probably natural, they're being a little more independent, then as you say, well, the next question is, what do we do to scaffold and help them? The first thing we have to do is look at our kids through a different lens. You know, if I've got a class full of four-year-olds, teachers will look at me and say, oh my goodness, he's running around the room and he's doing this and he's doing that. And I'm like, well, what's he acting like? And they're like, like a two-year-old. And I say, okay, so if a two-year-old were in your classroom, among your four-year-olds, what would you do differently for that two-year-old? Well, I'm going to tell you the same thing is true. When kids are interrupting during small group and they're looking for a whole lot of attention, the first thing we have to do is make sure that we are presenting tasks that are easier, that they can do more independently. Mm -hmm. And you know, some teachers are like, well, but but we've got to get them through, you know, this, this um, benchmark and this and this, and this is on the checklist. And I understand that. But if we want to be able to work with a very small group, we have to make sure that the activities in our centers um, or in, in, in the other activities that they're doing are truly tasks that kids can perform independently that more self-directed activities. So I tell teachers, I say, okay, when you have free play or when you're at recess or whatever it is, what are some of the things you know the kids can do independently? And then how can you bring that into a center, into an activity where you know that the activities that the kids that are not in your small group are doing are tasks that you know they can do on their own with minimal um, intervention from the teacher. So I go back to that zone of proximal development saying, okay, we make, need to make sure the tasks are a little easier, which is going to increase their ability to do them more independently. Absolutely. I was thinking back to my small groups and 
one of the things I always tell teachers is that, for example, you know, we don't start small groups day one, <laughs> despite what your administrator might say, because I've had administrators say small groups start day one. And I'm like, well, how can you actually figure out who belongs in which group? <laughs> um, but you, you need some kind of a, a routine that they have in place. You need some familiar activities that they really have down. Because if you're in a small group, the best thing is to have the other kids in review doing something that's very, very, very familiar. Because if, if it's not familiar enough, let's say you're reviewing an activity from last week, but little Johnny was out sick with COVID last week, right? So he doesn't know any of this stuff. And then you're going to depend on the kids to, re the other kids around him to remember from last week and all of this. So these really, really solid activities that they know, they love, they've done with you, the teacher, multiple times. That's why I don't start my small groups until much later in the year, because you have to have that in independence or independence type things in place, right? And Vanessa, I agree with that. I'm going to give you and your, your listeners a, a word to think about, and that is the word habits. Mm -hmm. You know, as you're talking to me and saying, okay, it's important that kids do activities that they've done with you. What we're trying to do is learn, move some learning to a habitual level mm -hmm. where you're with the kids, but because you've been doing the routine over and over mm -hmm. and over, the kids are able to go through the procedure of the activity right. because it's a habit. It's right. just, it's the same reason why we build routines into our school day. When right. you're absent, even if there's a substitute teacher there, if the kids have built into that habit, they're going to be less likely to need guidance or support right. from you. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that I also think about is if we're trying to help kids really be successful independently, then we have to think about where they're going to get help. And one of the first things that I think about, um, Vanessa, is you know, with older children, you're like, okay, what do the directions say? Okay, we don't do that with young children. So what is the equivalent of that with young children? And that, of course, are picture cues. Right. So whether it's in a center, whether it's up on a wall, when there are activities that kids are doing, let's say they're on the carpet reading, I'm going to have pictures of children going, holding a book, like at the, you know, at the um, library center, picking a book out. Then I'm going to have a picture of a child walking to the carpet. Then I'm going to have a child sitting on the carpet, looking at the book. So mm -hmm. the kids can look at those pictures and know step one, step two, step three. And I think sometimes we, you've heard me say this before, we commit a suicide. We assume <laughs> that we know that, like we we're like, oh, that, that's common sense. But you're also going to have those same kids come up to you and say, Ms. Levin, where do I get my book? I forgot where the, <laughs> right. If you have picture cues and you have the routine in place and you use your picture cues, we're building in a habitual routine that's going to help them be independent. And then we're also providing visuals that will help them be successful. I'm going to get a suicide on a t-shirt, Dan. I, I have not, it, or maybe I haven't, just don't remember, heard you use that term before, but I love it. So there are two of my favorite words that people when I'm presenting hear me say all the time. And one is a suicide. And the other one is when you have been voluntold to be part <laughs> of a committee in your school. Um, so those are the two words that, that my, um, my, my people hear me say all the time. Ever find yourself dreading the school bell? No, not the one in the morning. I'm talking about the afternoon. You know, the bell that lets you know your littles are gone for the day and you can get back to that mountain of planning and prep work on your desk. 
after that staff meeting, of course. Some things are just unavoidable for early ed teachers, just like those pesky staff meetings, but being overworked and overwhelmed doesn't have to be part of the job. Not if you've got the right combination of knowledge, curriculum, and support. That's where the Teaching Trailblazers program comes in. It's the program for pre-K teachers who want to bring their A-game to their students and still have a life. Go to teachingtrailblazers.com to apply today. I think that, you know, visual uh, routines or visual picture cues are key for sure because they need those reminders, yet they can't read. So having those there to support them is a super important thing. And I think that even using photographs of the children is probably even more meaningful, right? We've talked about this before, but I love that idea because I always think a child would rather see their own picture than mm -hmm. you know a stock photo of a different child. So I'm gonna take pictures of kids in my classroom doing these because then when the kids see themselves doing it or they see a friend do it, they relate to that more naturally because they're egocentric, right. very self-centered in terms of where they are in their stage of development that we focus on self. But I'm gonna go a step further. Um, I always think, how can I help kids become more independent? So I always say this, go ahead, do it with me, Vanessa, point to your head, say brain. Brain. Put your hands together and say buddy. Buddy. Do it again, what's this one? Brain. Your brain and a? Buddy. Yeah, put your hands down. And I teach that to the kids and I say, when you have a question or when you're not sure, the first thing, the first place you need to look is your? Brain. Yeah, in your brain. Do you know why? Because your brain's so smart. That's why Mr. St. Ring works so much and, and we learn so much because I'm trying to put all kinds of smart stuff inside your brain. Say, I have a brain. I have a brain. Say, I'm smart. I'm smart. And I do that all the time with little bitty kids. Number one, I'm trying to build their self-confidence but I want them to feel like they can solve problems. So I always tell right. them the first place you go to is your brain. And it sounds really silly, but the kids love this. Mr. Shankman, I went inside my brain and I found out what I was supposed to do. I can't <laughs> tell you the number of times kids have come to me and told me that. I'm like, that's because your brain's so smart. Mr. Shankman knew that. So the first thing I tell them is look inside their brain when they have a question. The second thing is they can always talk to a... But, but right. And so I used this with older kids for years and years. I would always teach them, say, first, you need to check your brain. Then you need to check a buddy. Um, and then then I would tell them to check their directions or whatever. Well, with little bitty kids, we've already taught them to look at the visual signs. So that's one resource they have. Another one is their brain. And another one is talk to a friend or a buddy. It is so funny to me. The reason I developed this years and years ago is I started watching adults. And Vanessa, when you have a problem and you're like, and there are other people in the room and you have a problem, what, how do you solve the problem? Do you Google it right away or do you turn to a friend and say, hey, do you know which one right. do you do? Do you Google or do you ask a friend? I'd ask a friend if there was a friend there. Yeah. So many people say, oh, well, I'd look it up. And I'm like, not if there's a person in the room, even for shy introverts. Most adults will solve simple problems by turning to someone else and saying, hey, did we use the people around us? Mm -hmm. Well, I want to encourage that in my classroom for a lot of reasons. One, it strengthens their social skills. It strengthens their language skills. It strengthens their problem solving skills. And then it also goes back to the original question that you brought up for this section, Vanessa, which is it's going to decrease the likelihood kids are going to interrupt me when working in a small group session. Yes. So visual signs, checking your brain, checking with a buddy, really, really powerful strategies for 
um, dealing with this issue. Absolutely. Um, Dan, one of the things I used to do, I want to get your take on this. I learned it from the, the great Kathy Griffin, not the comedian, but Kathy Griffin that you and I both know from a previous work relationship. And uh, I, I started doing this in my classroom and it worked really, really well. And it could go along nicely with your brain and the buddy and all of that. And it's to create a chart with the children. Maybe you've done this before, I don't know, but like for example, during center time, I would draw a on the chart a picture of me, and it can be a stick figure because the kids don't care how you draw. They think you're an amazing drawer, just like you're an amazing singer. But I draw a picture of myself, you know, maybe reading a book with children or something, and then I put a circle around it. And then I bring up the common things that kids have had issues with, like I have to go to the bathroom, or I, I'm thirsty, can I have a drink of water? And you know, the usuals, I have a tummy ache. And then I draw, for example, let's say tummy ache. I would draw a picture of a child holding their belly and then we would brainstorm. What can we do if we have a tummy ache and Mrs. Levin is working with the group? Oh, I know, what's the first thing? And they would say, ask your brain or ask a buddy or, you know, I'm just using your ideas here. But if they came to me during this small group time after we had done the chart, right? And I had put it on the wall near my small group area, I would just point to the chart. That is exactly what I do, except I put a picture of a brain. I put a picture uh -huh. of two kids working together. And then usually like with older kids, I have a picture of, you know, books because I talk about, you can check your brain, you can check with your friends or you can check directions or whatever, your material resources. Right. Uh -huh. I don't use that with little bitty kids. But I still right. can use those three pictures of your brain is your first and best resource. Mm -hmm. And people say with little bitty kids, yes, I say the word resource. We expose kids to language. Yep. So I use my brain. I use my buddy and I can have pictures. Now, I do want to bring up one more important issue here mm -hmm. because this comes up a lot when we start talking about tattling, which is a whole separate um, <laughs> you know, discussion that we've right, had. In right. the and that is you do need to have a 911. You do right. need to have some emergency signal because that's a different piece of this. Mm -hmm. So I'll, you, it's important to talk about things that kids need to solve on their own and then times where we do need to bring the teacher in. So I always go back to my job is to keep you safe safe and help you learn. Keep learn. you safe, safe and help you learn. Mm -hmm. And so what I say is if it's an issue of safety and someone's getting hurt, hmm, how can you get Mr. St. Remain's attention? And that is something different because some teachers, um, Vanessa, will tell their kids if you, if it's a 911 or, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's an emergency and you need, if it's a safety issue, walk over to me and just put your hand on my shoulder. Don't say anything. Just put your hand right here. So if I'm working with friends, I can take my hand, put it on top of your hand. And what that tells me is I know you want to ask me a question. Hold on. Then I can finish up. I can turn around and say, yes, Michael, what do you need? It'll be yeah. real and it's a nice way of kids not saying, Ms. Levin, Ms. Levin, you know, and just interrupting you. So some teachers like that. Other mm -hmm. teachers say, you know what, Michael, if y'all have, if you have something and you know it's an emergency, I want you to walk right in front of me and put a hand up and say it's an emergency. I can't tell you, Vanessa, the right way or the wrong way to do it, because what I want teachers to do is to differentiate that based on what works for them. I had a teacher say, I don't want children coming up and putting their hand all over me after they've been wiping their nose. And I'm like, <laughs> That's fine, you know, modify to meet your right. need. But if you don't have a procedure, you're creating confusion rather than clarity. 
Right. Another teacher had a little stop sign that was on her desk. Mm -hmm. And if it was an emergency, the kids grabbed the stop sign and held it up. Right. And, you know, and if that uh, there's an issue of time, because if you're somewhere where the sign is, that that can create a problem. But I just bring that up because kids interrupting teachers, very, very important issue. But we need to be proactive about having some discussions and some role playing with our kids so they know these are things that warrant you checking your brain and checking with a buddy and looking at the pictures. But this is something that's really important because it's about safety. So this is the way you can get, you know, my attention. Yeah, this is a kind of piggybacks on that is um, I used to drive a long way to and from work every day. When I was in the school district, I had a long commute, not because it was a huge distance, but because of traffic in Dallas. <laughs> and uh, one day I was behind a... Um, telephone truck, you know what I mean? Where they have the little cherry pickers that rise up, you know, whatever they were doing. And we were not far from my house and a hard hat fell off the back. And I didn't stop to get it. It, it rolled into the, like, there was a field next to me or whatever rolled in there. And I called the, the company and I said, one of the workers just lost their hard hat. And she was like, oh honey, that happens all the time. Just leave it, just, you know, keep it, whatever you want. I was like, all right. So I went back to that field and I got that hard hat and I said, you know, we can put it in our dramatic play center. We can put it in our block center. But whenever we introduce this idea of small groups, I would just wear it for that one day. Cause I didn't want to mess up my hair, Dan. <laughs> priorities yes and so i would wear the hat when i was like introducing them to this idea that i would be doing this thing and they were going to be independent and it was a visual cue to remind them that i was working because workers wear hard hats and it seemed to be really effective and so i would in my little pictures on my chart i would draw me wearing this little hard hat <laughs> and it seemed to work well, what that does is it provides a very, very, very concrete way for kids to understand when you're working with a small group and you don't want to be interrupted because you're doing your work. So it's a really concrete, nice visual for very young children and very, very developmentally appropriate. Yeah. You know, and I also remember I have this friend that I taught with for a long time and she did the thing with the hand, like you said, right? And I asked her one time, I said, you know, why do you do that or whatever? And she said, well, my kindergarten teacher did it for me. And I knew that when I became a teacher, I was going to do it too, because it made me feel like she was listening to me, you know, when she would put her hand on my hand. Because you know how you've been at recess before, Dan, with lots of little children, and they're all tapping you on the waist, you know, right about whatever their height is, and they're all tapping you, and, and it can feel like overwhelmed. So just putting your hand over their hand or having a place for them is really helpful because then they'll stop um, saying, Mr. St. Romain, Mr. St. Romain, Mr. St. Romain. <laughs> what I love about that, and I, Vanessa, I'm going to tell you, that's not for every teacher. Some no. teachers don't like that personal space, and I understand that. What I love about it is, you know, Vanessa, from long history with me, the foundation of everything we do with young children is the relationship. Mm -hmm. And I firmly believe when they put their hand on you and you put your hand on them, you convey so much support. And right. you've done kids are sitting right in front of you and, and you hold their hand while you're reading a story or you put your hand on their back and you can just feel them melt into you because they feel it's that whole trust versus mistrust support, right. like all those things that are so important. So I love that whole visual and that whole 
idea of putting your hand on their hand. And what I found is when you put your hand on them, kids immediately, they don't say a word, they just sit there. And it's almost like because of the feedback they're getting, they feel acknowledged as opposed right. to hold on. Right. But when you put your hand on their on their hand, they feel like, okay, she really is with me, even if she's talking to the group. And so then when you do turn around and give that child your undivided attention, they're more likely to not have interrupted saying, you know, Mr. Shankman, Mr. Shankman, Mr. Shankman, Mr. St. Remain. <laughs> it, it's immediate feedback to them that you'll be with right. them. I think you've given us so much information in this short time. I think we've been able to condense down some of the highlights of what do you do when your kids are constantly interrupting you while you're trying to do small group? Any parting thoughts before we let you go? I do want to recap just because I think it, it really helps. And that is easier task, visual signs, brain buddy and having a signal for emergency. I mean, those are the yes. main things we talked about. Um, but I, I, as always, I appreciate you inviting me and hope the information was helpful. Yes. And I hope that all of you out there um, got something you can take away and use in your classrooms right away. And don't forget, this is part of our Behavior Bites series. And our guest here is Dan St. Romain. If you missed any of the previous Behavior Bites, you can go back and listen or watch them right now. And in the meantime, Dan, tell us where people People can find you if they want to continue this conversation with you. If they just Google my name, um, I'm Dan St. Germain. Um, very easy to find. Um, and I have a website. I have Instagram, Twitter. So th it's easy to find me if they just do an internet search and then they can reach out yes. in a medium that works best for them. Yes. And we'll also put a link to your website below this video. So if, if you are watching along, go ahead and click the show more button below the video and it will expand and there'll be a link to Dan's um, website there. And if you are listening along, go to prekpages.com and search Dan St. Romain in the search box. If not, if you can't find anything there, leave me a comment and I will get back to you. <laughs> or Dan will. Uh, he's very good about that. So until next time, I'm Vanessa Levin and this is Dan St. Romain. If you love what you've learned in this episode, you've got to come check out the Teaching Trailblazers program. Teaching Trailblazers is the place for teachers like you to get the professional development, resources, and support you need to thrive. It's where you can learn relevant, life-changing best practices with professional development created specifically around the challenges early childhood teachers face. It's where you can get access to a complete research-based pre-K curriculum that you can use to supplement your existing curricula or use on its own to get 100% of your students kindergarten ready by the end of the year. And it's where you can hang out and connect over all things early childhood with other teachers just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will rock your teacher world, I guarantee it. Come join us at teachingtrailblazers.com to get more information and apply. That's teachingtrailblazers.com. I can't wait to see you there.